0: The Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington.
1: All right, we ended on page 53 last week, and we're in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, and starting there. I just want to remind you that there will be one Wednesday night when we will not be meeting. And that's the Wednesday uh, of Hanukkah, which is uh, the week uh, Hanukkah. first night of Hanukkah begins uh, the night of the 25th of December. So that week we will not be meeting. All right. So um, everybody will be home or in somebody's home eating latkes. And and doing whatever you do on, on, on at your house on Hanukkah. All right, um, let, let's just read the, the beginnings of this chapter, first six verses. I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible. Now, after Yeshua was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrive in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, it says in verse um, 2, we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And on page 53, we're looking at that phrase, and have come to worship him. Matthew has the pagan magicians giving honor in worship to Yeshua. The language parallels the common Hebrew, hishtachaveh, or hishtachava, to prostrate oneself. Matthew has no problem from the very beginning of his gospel describing the manner in which people worship Yeshua. In fact, Matthew will use the same word 12 more times and always in connection with proper worship and especially the worship of Messiah. Thus, for Matthew, worshiping Emmanuel, God with us, is the proper response of those who meet him. Have you ever been asked or have you asked the question, are we supposed to worship Yeshua or are we supposed to worship the Father through Yeshua? Have have you heard that question asked? I know it it is asked. It's not uh, uncommon to have it asked in uh, Torah communities, Messianic circles. Why do you think that that um, question is asked? And I'll repeat your... Yeah, great. Okay. So some might say, well, if you worship Yeshua, and if Yeshua is not the Father, then are you not worshiping two different deities? And wouldn't that deny the very premise of the Torah, which says there is only one God, and that He is unique. There's there's no other God like Him. All right. Any other... uh, Okay, so uh, in the, when the church divided um, between the East and the West, the Eastern church became very enthralled with iconography. If you ever go to a Greek Orthodox church or to an Armenian church, you will church building, I mean, you will see all manner of pictures and uh, statuary and all kinds of things. And uh, when asked... If When when these debates came about in the early centuries over whether that was appropriate or not, they they saw no no problem with it and considered that the worship of Yeshua was the worship of a physical being. And so they had no problem making physical representations of him and using that in their worship. Okay. So when Yeshua said, uh, uh, when the disciples asked him how they should pray, he said, pray this way. Uh, in Matthew six, we'll study this. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, so forth and so on. So, we don't we don't see uh, we don't see prayer in His name, although we do later on in the epistles. And He did even say in the Gospels, "Anything you ask in My name, believing." You will receive. So, what does it mean to ask in His name? So, some would say, well, that means to ask the Father for those things which are necessary, but you do so in the name of Yeshua because it's through Him that we have access to the Father. Well, the controversy over the worship of Yeshua was, was uh, met early on in the emerging Christian church um, and amongst uh, groups that were. Um, followers of Yeshua who had not yet divided away from the synagogue, such as the Nazarenes and the Ebionites and and others. So what do you think? You see, this is the mystery of our faith, and it is something that we cannot explain. The reality is, is that Yeshua is a man. He came as a man. Um, I received a phone call recently from someone who was uh, quite disturbed about an article that was in uh, the First Roots of Zion, recent First Roots of Zion magazine, um, written by another author. But since I uh, work as one of the uh, theological editors for that magazine, they were pretty upset that I let this thing slip through. And and I thought, nah, boy, what did I miss? You know, because... Usually, if there's something that's really going to make somebody upset, it's it's not people who are already um, living out Torah. It's people who are, you know, who think the Torah has been abolished, and they're upset because we're talking Torah and and describing it as good and something uh, spiritual and so forth. This person was, uh, what can we say, on track with uh, the Torah being valuable, and yet this person was really upset. And here's what they were upset about. The paragraph that said, "It's, it's without doubt that Yeshua, as a young boy, studied Torah and memorized it and came to understand it through his study. This person was very upset at that. Because they said he, that tells me you don't believe Yeshua is God. God doesn't have to study Torah; He wrote it. And I thought I scratched my head. and I thought, Am I really hearing this? But th- but this is but but this is uh, uh, one of the controversies that happened very early on in the emerging Christian church and it was this this greek question of how does the deity of yeshua and the humanity of yeshua how do we put that together how do we hold on to that how do we explain that and don't you find it interesting that in the apostolic scriptures there's really not a very very much explanation of that i mean yeshua clearly takes upon himself those things which are uh, relegated only to god you know he he forgives sins <laughs> you know he says before Abraham was I am not I was and, and everybody who heard him uh, as John reports understood exactly what he was saying they took up stones to stone him why because he made himself equal with God if he's eternal if he has never had a beginning then he's making himself equal with God and yet on the other hand he becomes weary he cries he dies Those are all very human things to do. So we have this enigma with regard to should we worship him or not because he's a man. We're not supposed to worship a man. We're supposed to worship God. And doesn't the psalm say that God himself says, I'm not a man. And I'm not the son of man that I should lie or that I should be unfaithful. So it's a mystery. So what do we do? Well, Matthew has no problem with it. And Matthew's a lot closer to the ancient Jewish community than we were. We, we have a tendency to want to put everything in a category, a philosophical category, that our worship with regard to to a non-corporeal God would have to be different than our worship of something corporeal. We, we are so mixed mixed together with this Greek way of thinking that we almost can't get out of it. What is worship anyway? I didn't really plan to go here, but it's it's worth, worth discussing. What is worship anyway? Well, giving honor to? You know, the, what's the primary Hebrew word that's usually translated worship? Uh, yeah, abodas, service. You know, the primary aspect of worship is serving. That's That's where true worship, anybody can come in and sing songs, anybody can dance, anybody can show up at a meeting, anybody can give words. Anybody can put a mezuzah on their door. Anybody can wear tzitzit, but true service of God is, and that's that's what Yeshua was talking about when he said, "You have neglected the weightier things when you should have held both the light things and the heavy things." And what were the heavy things he was talking about? Honoring your father and mother, keeping your vow, maintaining your oaths, being trustworthy. Those are, those are the ways that we honor God because and worship Him because when we worship Him, His name is sanctified on this earth. Now, you say, well, okay, when you put it in that way, can you in the same way honor Yeshua? By following what He says? By claiming Him as your master? By saying, if He said it, I'll do it? By revering Him? Yeah, well, that's worship. You see, we have these different categories. Say, well, okay, you know, I wouldn't... But I don't want to pray to Him because wouldn't that be, you know... Shouldn't I pray to the Father through Yeshua? Why don't you want... You don't want to talk with Him? If Yeshua were to walk through this door the door right now and come and join our group... And He could teach Matthew. um, (laughs) Then, um, you know, He could tell us exactly... He could tell us exactly what, what some of the things we, we would love to know. But if he were to come in, you think we would just all remain silent and say, you know, wow. Prayer is talking with him. But you say, wait a minute, Tim, prayer is more than that. Prayer is petitioning, petitioning him as though he has the ability to do something about it. You know, I hope I don't offend any of you, and I, and I don't intend to, but everyone who truly prays is a Calvinist. It's a simple act of prayer. It means that you believe God controls things. Or you wouldn't be praying. If you didn't believe God controlled things, why pray? I mean prayer itself presumes that God is in control. That He can overcome the microorganisms that are making me sick or you sick, or that He can He can do things that nobody else could do, and He has the right to do it, and He has the ability to do it, and if He wants to, He will do it. Which is why James keeps telling us Don't pray. Don't say I'm gonna go into the town tomorrow or the next day and do this and such, what you should say. If God wills, as the Lord wills. Well, does the Lord will? Yeah. So when we pray, we think to ourselves, okay, I'm praying to someone, to a being. What pictures do you have in your You say, Tim, you should have pictures of God in your mind. Okay, granted. But what concept do you have of God in your mind? Do you have a concept of someone who is, uh, for lack of our limited terms, a person? That has being, that has feelings, that thinks, that knows, that understands, that knows how to, uh, how to deal with relationship and those kinds of things? Okay, good. Well, is Yeshua able to do thing and control? I mean, how? when we get done with Matthew, we, we'll have to do many recaps, but done with Matthew, we're going to see he, he speaks and the storm ceases. And what happens? The disciples are really nervous about that. Say, who is this man that even the waves and the wind obey him? You know, he takes five loaves and a few fish, and he starts dividing it up. And he feeds enough. He he didn't. You don't just keep dividing things ad infinitum. You have to create to do that. He says to a corpse already decomposing yeah, already decomposing he says, Lazarus come forth he restores life to the dead he heals the sick he creates who is he? yeah, he's the one you pray to that's who he is now, you say, well, doesn't Yeshua want to give honor to the Father? absolutely and so should we but I find no problem in saying that in the mystery of which I cannot put my mind around it, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one in a unique and eternal way. And I may address each, and each of them, if I can use that, that sounds very polytheistic, but I can, it's not, I can address each of them as the one and only unique God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and that is the mystery of Immanuel. That this unique eternal one would come and dwell with us. Question, Aaron, a comment. Okay. Colossians one, let me repeat it for the for the tape. Colossians one, uh, we're being reminded that Colossians one says that he's the visible representation of the invisible God. And of course Hebrews says, Hebrews one says that same thing, that he is the exact outshining of, of God. Right. And let me repeat that again for the tape that the book of Hebrews says, you know, makes it clear that he is our high priest and that he therefore is our mediator. And uh, it, it's unfortunate that we have sometimes been taught in our days and, and in recent uh, centuries that um, we no longer need a high priest because we have immediate and clear access to God one on one. That isn't true. Everywhere in the epistles we are told and taught that we have access to God through Yeshua. If you don't have Yeshua, you don't have access to God. You need Him. If He stopped interceding for us, we all would be eternally lost. Our salvation is dependent upon His continual high priestly work as far as we understand uh, what the epistles have said. So, you know, when the veil was rent, which veil? A lot of people, you know, I had somebody on the phone just recently Um, asking me about that and I said well which veil and he said what do you mean which veil I said well there's more than one veil in the temple um and so it, it would appear that the outer veil, not the veil between the holy place and the most holy place, but a veil that covered uh, uh, the doors of the, of the temple where the, was possibly the one that was ripped because basically the ruling class of the Sadducees were holding the temple shut, so to speak, from the people. Wasn't that what Yeshua did when he came and cleansed the temple? He said, you've made my father's house a house of thieves. In what way? In that you have kept the people from worshiping as they Ought to worship? You've made it so expensive to worship, and with so many rules and regulations, they can't get in to do what they want to do. And so, uh, upon his death, that that uh, veil was rent, or that's at least a suggestion that now the the way to the temple was open, uh, so that Yeshua himself in the heavenly temple, not made with hands, would intercede for us. So I don't have any problem, and I don't uh, with uh, with worshiping Yeshua. You know, and um, I dare say that if Yeshua were to walk in through the door, none of us would have to ask who he was. We'd all know. And and secondly, we we probably wouldn't be in, in the position we're in now. We'd probably be flat on the ground. We'd probably wonder why we're – we'd try to crawl into the carpet probably. Um, you know, just say you know I wanted a little more time to prepare for your coming or something. Um, so, but but he's he's gracious and merciful, and he comes to us as the one who brings us near, brings us near to God. We were far off, we were without God and without hope in this world, but he brought us near. That's what he does, and that's that's a message of Matthew is that he is. The one worthy of our service would you would you rather use service than worship all right use service it 's the word that 's most often used in the in the in the Tanakh particularly of worship. Can we extol him absolutely I mean you know I was sitting talking uh, uh, With my son, we talk a lot about music, and uh, it's something that both of us love. Well, both of my sons. And uh, we were talking about a particular musician and just how unbelievably talented this guy is. We just could not stop going on about would he ever be, is there anything he couldn't do, you know? Or, like, I, I got a, uh, a CD recently of Wynton Marcellus, one of the better trumpet players in the world, maybe the best, and uh, I was listening to that the other night, and I, and I told my son, who had given it to me, I said, This guy is. He's just unbelievable. And I went on and on and on and on talking about how great he was. Well, that isn't worship in the sense of what we call worshiping God, but it is on, the, it is on a level of giving praise, right? You extol the, the deeds of someone and you say they're great and they're good. Well, we should be saying that about Yeshua all the time because everything he does is above the mark. Right. Um, again, to repeat for the tape, just the idea that God has given us in His Word everything we need to know, and when it's uh, when it, when the concept is beyond us, it's beyond us. <laughs> and um, you know, we don't seem to have any trouble. We don't seem to have any trouble appreciating and using and and even uh, uh, very much uh, uh, giving honor to something in our world like light. You like light. I like light, you know. If you didn't have light, you wouldn't have computers, right? You wouldn't have a lot of things, okay? Because remember, electricity involves light. But does anybody really understand light? You know, nobody nobody even now understands light. We still don't know what it is. We still wish we could figure it out. And there are scientists, well, you know, light years beyond me, no pun intended, um, that that are still struggling with this issue of what is light. Okay, question or comment over here. Um, uh, Yeah, this is, I just wanted to comment on on, uh, uh, the fact that though... Jesus was hundred percent man, he's also hundred percent God, and absolutely. I think uh uh john three thirteen uh asserts that point. go ahead and read it if you have it uh I don't have it I no. do have it in front of me uh no one has ascended uh to heaven, but he who came down from heaven that is the Son of man who is in heaven right yeah, absolutely, and that's the mystery well if he's if he's i mean and then we we start doing this Greek thing, okay. I'm not saying it's only Greek or Western, but I mean we we are really given to this way of thinking. Say, wait a minute. That doesn't work. God never changes. Yeshua changed. He went from being a baby to a little boy to a young man to a grown man. right? Uh, God never is weak. Was Yeshua weak? Yeah, he was. You bet he was. He got tired. That's weakness. He wept. He groaned in his own in his own spirit. So how is that possible? God's everywhere. Yeshua wasn't everywhere. He was in Jerusalem, then he was in Capernaum, then he was in Nazareth. You know, so. How do you figure this? So we have to give up all kinds of explanations. Isn't it amazing that the Jewish people who wrote the Bible didn't worry too much about that? If they worried about it, they would have talked about it. Right next to where they claim his his, his divine attributes and activity, they then talk about his humanity. See, that's that's a little more of the Hebrew way of saying, look... We, from a Hebrew perspective, we've come to realize this. There's all kinds of things we have to put in the same, it, we have to hold in one in each hand that don't seem to make sense, and we still have to hold them. Okay, you know, maybe that all got started, you know, back when uh, when God chose Abraham, and the very next thing that happened is what, a famine. You know, you can almost hear Abraham saying, "Thanks for choosing me. Could you unchoose me?" You know. Like if choosing is, is if, if when you choose me, then I I have to go through all this nonsense, this hassle, this hardship. Please choose somebody else. So you, you mean you mean God? You've chosen us, and as a result of choosing us, we're going to go through all this hardship? How does that figure? That doesn't seem to make sense. Well, there's all kinds of things that don't make sense, and or at least it doesn't appear to make sense. So we hold things and. In two hands and say, okay, I can't put them all in one hand, but I know they're both true. You know, from the Western mindset, we can't do that. You either have to hold one or the other. You can't hold them both. You know, it's not a both and, it's an either or. You know, either you're this way or you're this way. Either you agree with us or you go to some other church. You know, we're, we all have to be homogenous or it doesn't work. Well, that was a little longer than I wanted to spend, but. I don't think we will discover Matthew has no problem saying that Yeshua is worship and he never, ever tells somebody to stop worshiping. Uh, Larry. The first chapter of John, you know, coupled with the Genesis account, Genesis saying, let us make man our image. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Yeshua is given... You know, uh, credit for that in John. Right. Nothing existed but what he, unless it came from him. Exactly. Well, John makes it very clear he's the creator. Absolutely. All right. Prostrating oneself before a king or a dignitary was common practice in the ancient Near East, and thus one could understand the phrase as, and they paid homage to him. Yet, as noted above, Matthew regularly uses the Greek word proskuneo, to worship, And it seems fitting to give the word this same sense here. As such, the Magi portray in a figurative sense the manner in which the nations eventually will all bow to worship Messiah, as we read in Philippians 2. So that at the name of Yeshua, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will bow to him. That's where it's all headed. So that's why it's kind of neat when when we do the Amidah uh, uh, here at, uh, at synagogue, We there are th- times during prayers where it's uh, traditional to bow. Well, why? We're practicing. We're practicing. You know, you think it's just going to be natural for you to bow when you haven't ever done it before? Um, May as well practice. You know, we say, God, we're bowing to you. We're bowing to your sovereignty. We're bowing to your power. Yeshua, you are king. We bow to you. And when we bow, we say, we will do what you tell us to do. Even if it's difficult, we'll do it. Because we want to honor you. We'll sanctify your name. All right, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. We note similar language in 2 Samuel 4.1. Now when ish Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all Israel was disturbed. I mean, it's a, we, we see all kinds of little snatch phrases coming from the Tanakh. Herod's reign was tenuous from the beginning. His political office was constantly being challenged. It was primarily his strong loyalties to Rome and his own cunning that allowed him to remain in power as long as he did. Granted, he was known for his wide and grandiose building projects, chief among which was the expansion of the Jerusalem temple, and this gave him favor with the people. You understand what happened. I mean, the the temple mount is, is a mount, okay? It's a rounded mount, and the temple was situated on the top of it. And he basically had his stonemasons build these unbelievably gigantic walls on each side and then fill it all in so that it made a nice, flat, big, big surface where uh, hundreds of thousands of people could congregate. Any of you that have been there know that when you take the tunnel tour and you go along the wall, you come to this stone, which they still have to only estimate as to what it weighs. What's the, what's the estimate? 450 tons? You know, when we were there, I mean, the, the guide told us that there is not one modern piece of equipment that could pick this donut. And it's not on the bedrock. It's not on the bottom layer. It's on the second layer up. <laughs> So, figure how they got that four hundred and fifty plus ton stone, and it's up about oh it's on a it's on a rock foundation that's about two and a half feet tall, and that's sitting on the bedrock so in other words, long story short, when Herod did building projects he he did them to last and so that's what he did. So, you know, he, he won favor with the people because of that. Yet his unstable character, especially toward the end of his reign, left him vulnerable to his enemies, both external and particularly internal. The fact that all Jerusalem was also troubled reflects the historical fact that the Jewish leaders did all in their power to prevent uprisings of the people since history had proven that acts of insurrection were almost always met with sudden and wide disaster. You see... The Sadducees had to be in cahoots with Rome. They had to be. I mean, Rome continued to give them the power to exist and to have their religion. Do you know that except for certain um, groups like the Jewish people who had, uh, shall we say, a grandfather clause, it was you were labeled an atheist if you didn't worship the Roman gods. And the penalty for an atheist in Rome? Death. Death. So how did the Jews get away with doing the three things that Rome prohibited to their uh, citizenry? Gathering their own funds, money, for religious purposes, building a structure for religious purposes, and worshipping a God that Rome did not recognize. Well, they were grandfathered in. That was part of the deal. And they maintained that. How did they maintain that? Well, it was to the economic advantage of Rome to maintain that. And Rome took a certain number uh, amount of the proceeds that came into the temple. And who kept the proceeds that came into the temple? The priests, the Sadducees. So the priests had to be in cahoots. Not to mention the fact that Herod had appointed the, the last high priest. Okay, so... Um, When the Sadducees, and I'm speculating here a bit, but when the Sadducees heard that someone had come and said, guess what, there's a Jewish boy who's born and he's going to be king of the Jews. What did that spell? Nothing but trouble. As long as we kept the status quo, the gold came into the temple, the Sadducees got their share, Rome got their share, everybody's happy, nobody's getting hurt. As soon as the Jews say, no, we don't want Rome around anymore, everybody starts getting killed. So you've got to understand why they were troubled. The notion that one had arisen who would declare himself king of the Jews suggested the undercurrent of revolt, and the Jewish leaders would have taken such a notice very seriously. Moreover, the fact that the foreigners were coming with such knowledge would have been unnerving. How do you guys know about this? You're from what country? We should understand Jerusalem in this context to stand for the leaders of the Jewish community and perhaps the Sadducean priesthood and not as a metonymy for the Jewish people as a whole. It wasn't that everybody in Jerusalem was troubled about it. It's that all Jerusalem, meaning all the leaders of Jerusalem, were troubled about it. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. The chief priests and scribes were two separate classes of leaders, though Matthew and Luke have them together in several places. More often, Matthew combines the scribes with the Pharisees. So you can see that you don't have Sadducean scribes and Pharisaic scribes. You've got Sadducees, you've got Pharisees, you've got Essenes, you've got Saqqari, you've got Zealots, you've got all these different groups, but you've got scribes. Scribes were the learned uh, uh lawyers of the day. The chief priests comprised more than merely the high priests, present and past. They comprised an established college which included the current high priest and his predecessors, the captain of the temple, the heads of the weekly courses. Now, do you understand what I mean by the heads of the weekly courses? okay the the temple service was broken down into twenty four courses as best we can understand, some say more or less, but twenty four courses of priests, and they were by households and uh, so when it was your turn to uh, serve on, you know, on the schedule, on the rotation, it would be under the name of, a, of the leader of your household. Okay, So these were the leaders of the courses. And when you came in for your time, for your period of service in the temple, the leader of that course or that order for that, uh, for that period of time was to make sure things were done correctly and prepared and, and he, he was the guy that answered to the high priest or to the high priest and the uh, to the uh, president or captain of the temple then there were the directors of the daily courses they were more or less the administrators the temple overseers um, they watched the doors the gates they were guards and the temple treasurers they were the ones who supplied the money changers with their funds and kept uh, the gold that came in and and so forth and so on as well as there wasn't only money it was also uh, produce it was also animals and so forth that were dedicated to the temple scribes on the other hand were the teachers of the torah they are later referred to as the sages in the rabbinic uh, writings They were the lawyers who interpreted the legal aspects of the Torah and administrated justice, all functions that at one period of Israel's history belonged to the priesthood. The scribes functioned as an independent body of leaders, but always in connection with either the Sadducees or the Pharisees. So they were the lawyers of the day. They were learned, they were literate, they would write out the deeds, they would write out... uh, uh, legal documents, they would make judgments and so forth and so on. But they also knew the scriptures very well because they were the ones who copied the scriptures. There's a notice in the Talmud that says, "Woe unto the woe unto the teacher who has it." How does this? How is it? It's, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but something like, "Who has a scribe that's too meticulously true?" Now, the reason is because the scribes memorized the scriptures. Okay, they memorized it in order to reproduce it. They had to, according to tradition, at least they had to follow a written template, but they had it memorized because they'd done it so so many times. Well, if you're teaching and you slightly misquote a verse, but the way you quote the verse supports your point, the last thing you want is your scribe next to you saying, um, sorry, but you didn't quite quote that right? right? So that's what the saying means. So the scribes were <laughs> the scribes were to the teachers what you know like a computer is now. In other words, you didn't carry around scrolls, right? So the teacher would say, uh, where is that in Moses where he says da 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 and the scribe would tell him. So he was the walking concordance, he was the, he he, he could, he was the legal authority, you know, what, what, remind me of the halakha on this, and what do we decide here, and so forth and so on. So he was like the, uh, the lawyer who uh, assisted
0: the teacher in, in, in his, uh, teaching. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a Messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com.
1: Herod comes to them and and asks, where is the Messiah going to be born? That Herod would have had ready access to the chief priests and scribes is obvious, since history records that he had taken it upon himself to appoint several of the high priests. Thus, Herod held plenty of political clout in connection with the temple leadership, and it was only natural that he would seek information from them. Some have suggested that Herod gathered the Sanhedrin, but this is unlikely, since his relationship with the Sanhedrin was tenuous. I, I doubt that he could have gathered the Sanhedrin. When Herod came to power, one of his first actions was to execute every member of the standing Sanhedrin. The first thing he did when he became power is he just, he just executed all the Sanhedrin, all 72 of them. So the Sanhedrin that was, uh, that, that was convened after him, probably if, if he would had called for the Sanhedrin, they'd have run. They would have said, you know, we know what you do when you convene the Sanhedrin. We're not doing this again. Herod's question was quite simple. He wanted to know, according to Jewish tradition, where the Messiah, the Christos, which is the Greek word meaning anointed one, would be born. But as one would expect, his motives for gaining the information were nefarious. So everyone, I, I, I just presume that people know this, but I shouldn't presume it. Okay, the word Mashiach in the Hebrew is from the verb mashach, to anoint. And the word Christ in Greek, Christos, is the Greek word from Christao to anoint. It's, it's just, it means anointed one. Okay? So that's where the term comes. It's not, it's not the family name of Yeshua. Okay? You know, I'm Tim Haig, and he was Jesus Christ. Um, no, that's, that's, that isn't how it works. All right, verses 5 and 6. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, the question of Herod is answered by the group rather than by a designated spokesman, indicating that they had formulated their answer after discussing it together. No doubt they want to be careful in how they answered this, since political intrigue was the warp and woof of Herod's reign. In other words, why is he asking this? You have to be really careful when you give answers to a ruler who just executed all your predecessors. You don't don't want to get him upset, is the point. They based their answer upon the words of Micah 5.2, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judea, the tribal allotment of Judah. The older notion that the Sadducees relied entirely upon the five books of Moses. Now, put a question mark in the margin by this. I just read a brand, I'm just reading, book published 2005 by a well-known scholar, and I just read this morning... He made this statement that the Sadducees only held to the first five books of the Bible. Um, I think that's been proven to be false. But at any rate, uh, put a question mark there just to see, you know, whether we can come up with further evidence. But I, I, I think that they held to far more that that, uh, that they gave no credence to the prophets has been shown to be in error. And I have numbers of documents that I think I could show show you that to you if you would like to see them here, in our context, both the chief priests and the scribes base their answer to Herod upon Micah, which is not the first five books of the Bible, and show that they consider the prophets to be included in the canon of their authoritative scriptures. At least that's what some would say. Well, it doesn't say that the Sadducees did that only maybe only the scribes. Maybe the scribes gave them the answer. That's possible. All right. What do we do with this quote? Well, I've given it to you, and you'll discover throughout our studies that when I give you a quote, I give you the first column, which says MT, stands for Masoretic Text, that's the Hebrew text that we, that we have. And then LXX stands for Septuagint, which is the, or you know, some say the correct pronunciation is Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and then what we have in the book of Matthew. And I've, for those of you that work in the original languages, I've given you the Hebrew and the Greek. Um, if you read the English translations, you can see, that Matthew's quote is neither directly from the Hebrew nor from the Septuagint. Septuagint says, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, and in our Matthew text he says, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. But Matthew reverses it and says, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And it doesn't say for me For from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. Ruler is changed to shepherd. There's quite a bit of changes here, aren't there? Some have suggested that Matthew, rather than quoting Micah 5, 2, gives a rather free interpretive midrash. In other words, he's just kind of quoting a sort of version. Instead of Ephrata, which would have had little connection to Matthew's reader, he substitutes the land of Judah, which would have had direct bearing upon them, and further connects the Messiah to the tribe of Judah. Moreover, where the MT and LXX emphasize Bethlehem's insignificance, Matthew says the opposite, by no means least among the leaders of Judah. Most obvious is Matthew's complete reinterpretation of the final clause, which attributes to the ruler a shepherding role over the people of Israel, while both the Masoretic text and Septuagint emphasize the eternal and thus authoritative and even divine rule or reign of the prophesied one. Is it possible that Matthew has combined a phrase from 2 Samuel five two, which is the same as 1 Chronicles 11.2, where God addresses Saul through the prophet Samuel, you will, be, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be ruler over Israel or else has he paraphrased the Septuagint of Micah 5.4, and the Lord shall stand and see and feed his flock with power. Now here's my suggestion, and it's just a suggestion, I would, certainly wouldn't fall on my sword for this, is Matthew, has Matthew somehow in his sources gotten exactly what they, what the Sadducees and the scribes told Herod? In other words, he's quoting them. He's not quoting the scriptures. He's saying, this is what they said to Herod least is possible why would that why would that commend itself to me well first of all herod was the ruler over what area judah well here's a guy that just you know some years earlier has executed all your colleagues the last thing you want to do is quote him a verse that says that you're that bethlehem is least that's in his province okay and the next thing you don't want to do is say there's going to be one that's going to rule over israel so what do you do You soften it to shepherd Israel. It's just a suggestion. But the point, obviously, is is that Micah said the Messiah would be born in what city? Bethlehem. So, okay, that's the primary point. Next page. Then Herod uh, secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. By the way, we could spend a long time uh, on that quote. And we could spend far more time because it's very much of a Messianic quote. No doubt about that. If you want more uh, work on that, you can look in the notes on uh, Messiah and the Tanakh. I have a whole section on Micah 5, too. And, uh, and, uh, in fact, I think previously we talked about it as well. Okay, page 56, verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Herod has put together two pieces of information, one from the Magi that a star appeared as a portent of a change in rulership and one from the chief priests and scribes that the prophets had predicted a ruler for Israel who would be born in Bethlehem. But he wants to know the timing of the event. So he inquires of the Magi the exact time the star appeared or we might say began to shine. There is no indication that Jewish leaders are aware of the presence of the Magi, nor that the Magi know of Herod's inquiry of of the chief priests and scribes. This all adds to the clandestine plot. It says Herod secretly called the Magi being formulated against the child. Moreover, the exact time of the star's appearance is necessary because Herod has already determined to effect a mass slaughter of Jewish boys. He needs to know how wide to make his massacre. The fact that he eventually determines all males two years old and younger were to be destroyed would indicate that the initial appearance of the star had occurred sometime earlier but we cannot say that it was necessarily 2 years earlier one would expect a madman like Herod to have cruelly chosen excessively wide margin of time to assure that the child was no longer a threat so that say okay the wise men said well it was about a year and a, half, a year ago you it wouldn't be surprising to have Herod say okay kill all every everybody 2 years old and younger i mean i want to give plenty of leeway in case they you know they messed up a few months it is kind of amazing when you stop to think of you know you're driving down the road these days and you see the manger scenes and you see the wise men there at the manger and it's we really have this kind of uh, fairy tale view of how this whole thing came about. This is this is a good deal of time after Yeshua's birth. Okay, I mean it's maybe. A year, year and a half. So it's it's quite a quite a long time after Luke's account, where he has the shepherds coming out of the field, and seeing, you know, and and understanding that the, that this child has just been born. Question. Yeah, going back to what you said last week about uh, the magi coming to their home, not to the major. Um, uh, that makes a much better case for why Herod would kill everybody two years and and yeah. younger. As Otherwise, that would not be excessive. That would um, be—it would make no sense at all. Right, right. And the very fact that he wants to know when the star was appeared, and the fact that he comes up with two years—now, granted, that's excessive. But I mean, if he thought that Yeshua had just been born the week earlier, it wouldn't—it wouldn't—it wouldn't wouldn't make any sense at all to uh, to put to death the two-year-olds and younger. Right. Okay, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. A number of questions arise from this verse. First, is it possible that the Magi were unaware of Herod's sinister reputation? I mean, they're supposed to be these wise men. Perhaps so, but it brings into question their ability to know secrets. Secondly, why would Herod rely upon foreigners when he had a whole police force at his disposal? I mean, he's the ruling governor. He's got plenty of people to go check things out. Perhaps the answer to this question lies in the fact that toward the end of Herod's reign, he was able to trust no one in his court. Had it become known that Herod was running scared, it would have offered an opportune time for his enemies to seize the throne. If he would have gone to his own police force and said, Hey, listen, I've heard a rumor that there's a, somebody, a ruler of Israel, that's going to try to take over my position. Would you go to Bethlehem and find out? He couldn't trust anybody. If they had actually found someone like that, they might have gone in cahoots with that person against him. Uh, Larry. Oh, sure. I mean, he played this, uh, you know, I mean, read Shakespeare. I mean, you know, I mean, you have you have uh, many plays and, and many uh, stories written about this period of history. It's just unbelievably uh, convoluted in how of the intrigue, of the inner intrigue of the ruling class in, uh, in Rome. And, yeah, he was playing a chess game. There's no doubt about it. He tells the Magi to search carefully for the child. And we have here the word pation, which is a diminutive form of pace. So it means we might translate Toddler. I mean, it's it's a child, but it's a little child. That's the point. Emphasizing the exigency of the matter, just as he had inquired about the exact time the star appeared, he further explains that when they found the child, they should inform him so that he too could come and worship him. This lets the reader know beyond doubt that the Magi are not complicitous in the plot, but must be tricked in order to do Herod's bidding. Again, it seems strange that Herod would trust their ability to discern hidden things on the one hand, while thinking that they were unable to see through his scheme on the other. But the same power that corrupts also makes fools. Verse 9, after hearing the king, they went their way, and behold, the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Do you notice how Matthew calls him the child, the child, the child? I mean, he's his favorite word throughout this, this portion. Why? Why does Matthew want to keep emphasizing that he's a child? Yes, because he's humanity. He's not an ethereal, mythological, uh, made-up somebody who shows up on the scenes uh, like an alien or something. No, I mean, he, he's born, he's birthed, he's a child. Hearing may have, uh, after hearing the king, they went their way. Hearing, the word hearing, may have its Semitic sense of obey, so that they went on their way in obedience to Herod's instructions. Ah, it's just a suggestion. The star seems to appear, disappear, and reappear. Apparently it appeared to the Magi while they were still in the east, and now it reappears in order to guide them to the location of the child. This is indicated by the use of behold, which, once again, numbers of the versions omit. I put it in there, verse 9, when I wrote... It. But if you look in your nasb it 's not there. it just says after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them, but the, the, the Greek text says, and behold the star they leave the word behold out um, the Greek te- text does not require an interpretation such that the star hovering precisely over the house where Mary and Joseph lived rather the star reappeared and directed the magi to Bethlehem. they were probably traveling at night contrary to early Christian tradition, where they doubtlessly made discreet inquiry about the birth date of a boy that coincided with the original appearance of the star. Since Luke's account uh, tells us that the shepherds did not keep silent, but they told everybody, it's reasonable to presume that the town as a whole was aware of the birth. Verse 10: When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I, I i can't get over this verse. I was sitting there looking at that verse today. I was working, working, working. Now, wait a minute. Let me see if I get this picture right. Here we got pagans, probably from Persia. or or somewhere, Arabia, someplace like that. They're sorcerers. They live by the stars. You know, they throw chicken livers on boards to find out what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, They, you know, they do all kinds of crazy things. They do darkness. They're taken over by, by the demonic. They worship false gods. Why are these guys rejoicing like this? I mean, they have gone way out of their way to come to look for somebody that they have absolutely zero relationship with. Doesn't it just seem strange? It does to me. We've got some good answers. Let me know. I think I have some. Okay, good answer right here. Yeah. The, okay, let me repeat the question. The question is, why am I so certain they were astrologers and not astronomers? And the reason the reason is just because of the words that are used. The Greek word magos always means sorcerer. Now, this is what the word means. So, you know, were the sorcerers well-versed in the patterns of the stars and the planets? Absolutely. They studied and studied, and they passed it on from generation to generation. They had a lot of knowledge. And the more people study ancient civilizations, the more they realize that the ancients had a very, very good working knowledge of the patterns of the stars and the planets, or what they saw as stars. They didn't know necessarily they were planets. But um, So that's, at any rate... The star which the Magi had seen while still in their country reappeared while they were in Jerusalem. There is nothing in the text to indicate that the star had originally led them to Jerusalem. So we should presume that they came to the capital city because they had interpreted the star as indicating the birth of a king. When they saw the star once again, they took it as a confirming sign of their original interpretation, and thus they rejoiced exceedingly. And and the Greek is really redundant, so it's piled on top of each other. Literally, they rejoiced with great joy exceedingly. Apparently, the star was in the direction of Bethlehem, offering them further direction as to where they might find this newly born king. And by the way, this is not unheard of in the ancient world. Josephus, as I put a note in the margin, tells us that before Jerusalem was destroyed, there was a comet that came over, over the city. And everyone knew it was either a portent of something good or bad. And they interpreted it as being bad. You know, we've seen the star. Something bad's going to happen. Why does Matthew include this notice? We wonder why the Magi would have had such joy at knowing that a king had been born in Israel, especially when we have just read that all of Israel was troubled over the matter. Whatever the case, we may once again note the sub-theme of Matthew in regard to the ingathering of the Gentiles to the worship of Israel's God. Here, Gentiles have come from a foreign nation and expressed joy at the birth of the Messiah. Whatever the cause of rejoicing may have been for the Magi themselves. In Matthew's retelling of the story, this highlights the fact that the birth of the Messiah signaled the time foretold by the prophets when the nations would come to Israel's light and offer worship to her God. So I can't give you a reason why they would have rejoiced so much unless you know the closest I could come to it is if they were familiar with Daniel's prophecy and they believed it. But um, that's a long shot. But for Matthew, he sees that there is now coming the time when the Gentiles are going to come in and the Magi are the first fruits of that harvest. They are the ones who are coming now to this Messiah. And they are rejoicing. They're not coming against Israel as enemies. They're coming to Israel as those who are rejoicing in Israel's king. So that's a whole new way of looking at it. Um, from Matthew's point of view after coming into the house they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell to the ground and worshipped him then opening their treasures they presented to him gifts of gold frankincense and myrrh The notice that they entered a house alerts us to the fact that Mary and Joseph had taken up residence in Bethlehem, something that would have been reasonable given the fact that the infant mortality was high in the ancient world and traveling long distances with with a newborn would have been avoided if possible. So, okay, Mary has this baby. They're not going to start trekking across the country right away. It's time to settle down, at least for a while. It would also seem likely that Joseph had relatives living in Bethlehem, so remaining there would not have been difficult. There is no discrepancy with Luke's account. Contrary to some of the commentators, in which he describes a stable as a temporary dwelling where Mary gave birth to Yeshua. Matthew fills out the picture by alerting us to the fact that after the birth, Joseph found more permanent housing in Bethlehem. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Having previously seen only the star of the Magi now come to gaze upon the king they were seeking. The child is listed before Mary, since he, we would expect to hear the mother's name first, Mary and the child, but no, the child and Mary. Uh, why? We all know why. We almost don't ask that question when we read it now, because we know who the center of focus attention is. Indeed, Mary is known primarily as his mother. And when the Magi offer their worship and gifts, they do so only to Yeshua, not to Mary. Moreover, Joseph is not even mentioned. Where's Joseph in all of this? Stressing the fact that Yeshua had no earthly father. We may also note the repeated use of the phrase, the child and Mary, his mother, where Joseph is not listed. In each case, the child is listed first, because this is Matthew's focus. And they fell to the down to the ground and worshipped. Here we have it again. The combination of falling down and worshiping is not uncommon. It's generally the meaning of the Hebrew verb chava. By the way, those of you that do Hebrew, if you look up chava, in the older lexicons, you won't find it. You have to look up shacha. But we now know that the sheen is not part of the root. The root is chava. And it's a hishtafel, the only one that occurs in Hebrew. Commonly in the Tanakh, the use of chava is combined with a locative, that is a direction such as to the ground. I've given you some references. Indicating a prone position. So when it says they worship, if in fact this is... A, 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 If the background of this is the Hebrew word chava, it means they fell down in a prone position. Such a posture was not reserved only for worship in a religious sense, but could be used when giving honor to royalty or to someone of high importance. We know Abigail lays prone before David when he comes, that uh, the the students of the prophets bow down to the ground when Elisha shows up. And uh, in in the book of Ruth, Ruth does the same thing before Boaz. However, the early strata of rabbinic literature evidences that bowing in the presence of an idol was prohibited, indicating that bowing had become a recognized form of worship. So I don't know how early we would say this is because the the text that I quote is from the Tosefta, which is 300 or later. That's that's quite a bit later. But does it reflect an early uh, uh, ruling of the Jews? In other words, how do you know when you worship something? Okay? More specifically, how do you know when you're worshipping an idol? You worship an idol by doing what the idolaters say is uh, is worship. Now, in some cases, that would mean giving, uh, laying food at the foot of the idol or at the pedestal of the idol. It, it may be uh, doing other acts of uh, of indecency and those kinds of things. But inevitably, there was a laying on the ground or a kneeling on the ground. And so... We read, for instance, in this Tosefta passage of Avodah Zarah, which means uh, idol worship, All places which are called by names complementary to idolatry does one rename with euphemisms insulting to idolatry. So, And then it lists a whole bunch of them. For instance... If it says the house of the idol, you change it to say the house of the idiot. In other words, you don't ever say to anybody, Hey, did you hear who bought the house a couple, couple doors down from the house of the idol? No, if you're a Jewish person, you change that to the house of the idiot. And so, I mean, maybe the maybe the most obvious one is Baal Zavul. You know, whether it's Lord of the dung is, is what they said. Um, so that, so you, that that's what this is saying. Now... He whose coins were scattered in the direction of an idol should not bend over before it to pick them up because it looks as if he is bowing down to an idol. But he turns his back on the idol and collects his coins. You don't face the idol when you pick up your coins. You, you, you give him something else to look at. So is it possible that, that in the time of Yeshua this was this was understood by the Jewish people? I think so. Some have suggested that that's one of the reasons why you wouldn't want to go into the house of a pagan, of a Gentile. Oftentimes, they would have their house idols near the door. And the doors were very short. Have any of you seen some of the older homes, I mean the ancient homes in Israel, like the burnt house and so forth? The the door was very low. You had to really stoop over to get in. And there was a good reason for that. It made it really hard for somebody to rush in. It, it, it It was a bit of a security. You had to come in more slowly. And so you had to bow down to come into a house. Well, what happens if there's an idol right across uh, on the wall? Yeah, oops. But even if Matthew is simply relating a social custom of the Magi and prostrating oneself before royalty, it may well be in light of the importance attached to bowing as an act of worship among the Jewish community that he wishes to stress the legitimacy of worshiping the Messiah, something that in formative Judaism was proper only for God. If, in fact, this was the case, Matthew, being part of the Jewish community, would have uh, would have been chagrined to have someone bow down and prostrate themselves to Yeshua, if, in fact, he was not viewed as one worthy of that worship. Having given honor through prostrating themselves before the child, the Magi opened their treasures, and the, the Greek word, thesaurus, does it sound like some word we have? A thesaurus? Yeah. What is a thesaurus? It's a treasure of words. Right. It, but this was probably some kind of box or chest which could be locked. Um, they open them to present him gifts. Once again, as far as Matthew is concerned, their gifts are for the child, not for his mother or father. The later Mariology of the Roman Catholic Church is entirely lacking from the biblical text. They give gold, frankincense, myrrh. The gifts listed, there may have been more. You know, this is why they say there's three, right? Because there's only three gifts. They could have given them a whole bunch of other things, and these were the ones that were named by Matthew because they were important. Question. The later Mariology of the Roman Catholic Church, that Mary is a giver of grace and that she is uh, to be prayed to. And so, in other words, if anyone in the, at the time of Yeshua, or if Matthew had considered Mary to have this level of, uh, of importance, it would seem that there would have been more. I mean, the Magi would have said something to her, like "Hail Mary, uh, f- full of grace. The Lord is with you," which is, by the way, from the Scriptures, right? Okay. I mean, Elizabeth said that, but but it goes on to you know to say, "Blessed are you," and "Blessed is the fruit of your womb," and so forth. I mean, you would have expected him to increase, in, incorporate some of that here, if Mary were to be given some high position of of respect in relationship to Yeshua but it's what I continue to see here is that that just the opposite is the case the child is the focus the child is the focus Mary almost fades the background here and she uh, she is known primarily as the mother of the child you know her name comes up but that's basically how she's viewed Um, Frankincense is a fragrant gum resin from various trees used primarily in cultic worship in the ancient Near East. By cultic, I mean that in the the proper sense of the word, having to do with religious uh, ceremony. Being difficult to obtain and thus quite expensive, it was also used by perfumers as well as for medicinal purposes as a painkiller. It is doubtful that it was cultivated in Israel. We know that frankincense was imported from Arabia, where the trees from which it was collected grew in abundance. Frankincense was one of the ingredients in the incense of the tabernacle and temple, was added to the bread of presents. It was also added to the grain offering. Myrrh, and by the way, the Greek says smyrna, uh, but there's another Greek word, mura Uh, is a fragrant gum resin from the uh, balsam dendron myrrh or camifora katof trees, which are particularly abundant in Arabia and North Ethiopia. It was used for perfumers, cultic ceremony, and as a burial spice. Myrrh was used in the holy anointing oil of the tabernacle and temple services and is repeatedly mentioned in the Song of Songs, as is frankincense, as a component of incense or perfume. Myrrh, like frankincense, was quite costly commentators both ancient and modern have taken the three gifts as symbolic in one way or another the early church fathers considered gold to be a symbol of Yeshua's kingship frankincense as indicative of his divinity and myrrh as a portend of his sacrificial death while such interpretation may be useful for homiletical midrashim they hardly find support in the text itself for instance Matthew does not list myrrh in connection with Yeshua's death but uses gall instead Luke uses myrrh but uh, Matthew says gall Uh, wine mixed with gall. And gold and frankincense would have been a well-expected gift for royalty, so they needed no further connection in Matthew's mind. As Carson notes regarding the common interpretation among the church fathers, this interpretation demands too much insight from the Magi. The three gifts are simply expensive and not uncommon presents and may have helped finance the trip to Egypt. In other words, they may have brought a lot more to sell uh, besides that which they gave uh, as a gift. If we are to search for an extended meaning in the gifts, in Matthew's perspective, we might consider the suggestion by some that the gifts themselves represent an eschatological anticipation of the ingathering of the nations. That's just big terms to mean the prophet said at the end time, the nations are going to come. In Israel and bring a whole lot of gifts. A better guess, uh, one commentator says, is, is as to what the gifts mean is this the Magi's worship and presentation are the first fruits of the eschatological pilgrimage of the nations and their submission to the one true God. Isaiah 60 and Psalm 72 both are texts that spoke to this end time reality. In Isaiah uh, 60, verse 5, the wealth of the nations comes to Israel. And in verse 6, it mentions frankincense and myrrh, while verse 9 lists silver and gold. In Psalm 72.9, the nomads of the desert bow before Israel's king, and in verse 10 speaks the, uh, of the kings of Tarshish, Sheba, and Seba, along with the remote nations, bring gifts to the king. It is a scene in which all kings bow down before him, all nations serve him. The apocalyptic literature has the same scenario. In, this, in the Psalms of Solomon, we read that the heathen nations would come and present gifts to the son of David, and Enoch... Tells us he foresees the time when all those dwelling on the earth and sea and islands will bring to the righteous and elect one, the Son of Man, gifts and presents and tokens of homage. Likewise, the later Midrashim offer the same emphasis. Uh, Commenting on on Genesis 49.10, we read on the phrase, Until Shiloh come, this indicates that all the nations of the world will bring a gift to Messiah, son of David, as it is says, In that time shall a present be brought unto the Lord of hosts. So from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, Yeshua is set forward as the rightful heir to the Davidic throne and the Messiah who would redeem Israel and gather the nations to her as the prophets foretold. Moreover, the revelation of his arrival is not limited to Israel but through the appearance of the star is broadcast to the nations as well. The Magi and their gifts then may well have been understood by Matthew as a symbolic representation
0: of the dawning of the final days of redemption. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.